0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. This is the first episode that we are taping from my home. So apologies in advance for the sound quality. I have no idea when we'll be back in the studio again, though, so let's just have fun together. (laughs) Um, I am so delighted to be Zooming with Ivy Pakoda. Ivy is the author of The Art of Disappearing, Visita- Visitation Street, and Wonder Valley, an LA Times Book Prize finalist and winner of the Strand Critics Award. She lives in Los Angeles. Her latest novel is called These Women. Welcome.
1: Thanks. I'm so glad to virtually be here. Thank, Thank you for being be my
0: here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're doing the best we can. So I don't know if you saw this, but about a month ago, the New York Times ran a feature in their real estate section that said that West Adams in Los Angeles is the new up and coming place to live. And I, I didn't thought, see that. <laughs> is I was like, is this stealth marketing for Ivy's book, or what's going on?
1: Tell um, me about West Adams. Well, I mean, I didn't see that, which is really funny. Um, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of in the know about everything to do with West Adams. Um, I think if you want your neighborhood to gentrify, you should ask me to write a book about it. I'm three for three, (laughs) like Visitation Street in Red Hook, Wonder Valley in the area around Skid Row. And, um where they just put fences up on the sidewalks because they they claim it's because of COVID-19, but it's clearly to clean up Skid Row. Um, And now West Adams. Um, So West Adams is an interesting neighborhood. It's a huge, huge part of LA that spans from sort of just a little bit west of downtown and north of Koreatown, um, if people know where that is, all the way towards Culver City. I mean, so I have friends who live in West Adams and they're four and a half miles away. Four or four miles away. Um, so, and it's divided up into a lot of micro neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. I live on the northeastern section. Some people don't technically consider it West Adams, but the point about West Adams that is interesting is um, it was a beautiful. It still is beautiful. Um, kind of suburb of downtown with these uh, pretty big mansions um the six feet under house is a walking distance from my house the house where they filmed 20th century women that big fancy mansion is not in santa barbara or wherever it's supposed to be it's a block away actually it's in my it's actually in my book um they go to a party there um (gasps) oh and uh yeah it's that house and um also the first season of um uh, American Horror Story, that big Victorian house. These are all West Adams houses. So, just to get a sense, they will be big houses. But West Adams was the first neighborhood in Los Angeles that res- lifted restrictions on non white home ownership, which inspired city planners when they were figuring out where to put the 10. They had a great place, which was right in the middle of this neighborhood where finally non white people could own giant properties. And it sort of annexed it, sort of like Red Hook, like with Robert Moses and the. Mm-hmm. Um, BQE. Mm -hmm. It cut it off from the rest of LA. Um, They put this giant gulf in the middle of the uh, neighborhood and the property values decreased. Um, My particular section of West Adams is pretty well known for some of its residents. Marvin Gaye lived and died here. Um, Ray Ray Charles lived here. Um, You know, we have a cemetery uh, that's also in the book, uh, in These Women, where um, non-white, famous non-white angelinos are buried um because they weren't allowed to be buried in hollywood forever so it has that kind of interesting history and of course now with the way the world works anything that was <laughs> sort of falling on hard times is like a hot property so it's yes. coming back um although lots of the long-term african-american residents would claim it never went away um, um there is still this sense of ghettoization south of 10. like um, I know people who live there, they can't get food delivery. They're like, no, well, oh. nothing gets delivered over the 10. That's changing. Um, not that that's a giant crisis in this world. Um, well, that's why it's changing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you know, it's, it's slowly getting encroached upon by these two neighborhoods on either side, Culver city, which is its own city in Los Angeles. Don't ask me to explain that to you. It just happens to be a little city with its own mayor. Um, that home prices there are getting expensive and it's coming into West Adams and downtown is also a lot of people want to be adjacent to downtown, and not live in apartment. So West Adams is getting, you know, on the up and up though, you know, by New York, Brooklyn standards, um, it has a ways to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: okay, um, Tell me about these women, which is told from the points of view of five different women um, and how you came to this conceptual idea of how to tell a story about a serial killer from the points of view of not just his, they're, they're not all his victims, spoiler alert.
1: I mean, I think they sort of well, are they sort of are. Okay, Yeah, point. yeah. So um, they're not all, you know, he did not kill all of these women. He doesn't, I mean, yes. Yes. Um, but we can't exactly talk about who they are, which is a really tricky thing about this. Yeah, this is have, tough. I have to do this thing on Goodreads, which I generally don't do. I just read all the reviews because, like, one of the first ones gave it away. And uh, it was like, oh. I, this has happened to me a couple times. Um, so, you know, people say don't read the reviews. I'm like, I'm damn well going to read those reviews.
0: <laughs> and other people like, read like, those reviews. Yeah, it's worth yeah, knowing. It's how- worth knowing, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of worth knowing what people respond to because, you know, as a writer, you're often writing books based on what critics say, but not based on, you don't know, base it on, but you think about that. But like, yeah. I'm kind of interested to know what like the average person who's picked my book up thinks about it. Like, I don't think that's such a bad thing to know about. Um, um, anyway, so it came about in like several different ways and I always tell a different story about it. But um, the 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 genesis of the project was when I was writing Wonder Valley, I... Wanted to get a little bit more a uh, sense of how a certain type of African American person from Los Angeles talked, and um, I did work, I did and do work in Skid Row, and you know have a lot of voices in my head from working there. But a lot of the people who um, live in Skid Row um, are not from Los Angeles; they've wound up um, downtown for through a big sort of chain of events. Um, mm-hmm. So I watched a documentary by the filmmaker Nick Broomfield who's this very sort of erudite and posh English filmmaker. And he'd made a documentary about a serial killer in Los Angeles um, called the grim sleeper. The guy's real name is Lonnie Franklin. And, you know, I knew about the case because it was um, developing when I first moved here. So it was in the news and he, um, Lonnie Franklin had killed or the man who turned out to be Lonnie Franklin had killed a bunch of women and then been dormant for 17 years or 15 years. I can't remember exactly. And then he'd come back, and was killing again. Um, it's pretty clear that he actually did not go dormant, but he may have worked in a. Well, he did work in a waste disposal place, and maybe he. Oh, you know. Gosh, yeah, they okay. think they're not. It's not entirely true, that, but he was disposing the bodies differently. Um, so I watched this documentary, which was amazing. I recommend it to everybody, not entirely because of the subject matter, but because um, of the people. Uh, there's a woman in the documentary who becomes sort of. Nick Broomfield's Dr. Watson. Um, Her name is Pamela Brown, I think. And she just has the most, she's an ex-prostitute. He takes on this tour of LA. But okay, so in the course of the documentary, he is meeting these um, friends of Lonnie Franklin's and um, they say that thing. You always hear in serial killer um, stories like, oh, Lonnie was like the coolest guy. Like he would take me fishing and he's just an everyday guy. I can't imagine that. Um, So they start off saying that. And then one of them, calls Nick Roomfield up and is like well um he did have like all of these pictures of bound and tortured women in his car oh, and <laughs> you know go. um yeah and you know there's this weird shed at his house and we always heard screaming or i mean i can't remember the exact details and i just was watching this man's face as he was talking about it i thought he knew he knew the entire time he knew not even the, only the entire time that his friend was doing something, but the whole time, the first part of the documentary was being made.
0: Yeah,
1: And they also interviewed um, Lonnie Franklin's son's girlfriend who lived with them and had a similar story about like, well, he was kind of creepy. And, you know, he'd watch us have sex and, you know, there was a stuff mm. in the house and his wife was sort of, you know, checked out and she knew something was up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she gave the same sort of line, like, you know, I, he was always really nice to me. Um, and I just was struck by the amount of denial that must sort of um, yeah, you know, permeate the life of a serial killer. Like, they're not a particularly intelligent breed of person, like no more intelligent than the average human being, um, but they get away with something because people turn a blind eye to it. And I started thinking of how many people turned a blind eye to Lonnie Franklin. Um, and then I thought it'd be really interesting to write about the denial aspect of a serial mm-hmm. killer. And when I started sketching the book out in my head, it seemed to me that it would be more, I thought of what some of his family members might say. And also like the family members of the victims who no, no one, the reason he got away with it is no one paid attention to a lot of the victims because they're young African American women during initially during like the crack period in LA. So they're disposable. So um, what sort of denial you must go through as a parent to imagine that your daughter was killed in this way. Like, so that's sort of where it came from um, a multi-perspective take on Mm. levels of
0: denial. Yeah um i i something that you remind us in the book or you have people remind us is that serial killers for the most part are not criminal masterminds and um a lot of our media now uh tells a different story yeah i mean the um the are like fiction media you know the fiction I should, media like,
1: yeah yeah i feel like It's totally true, and I I say this all the time, it's not an original thought, except that it's not said a lot. Um, I think there's this obsession, I don't know, that um, if you can't catch someone, they have to be smarter than you, or something, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, and I'm not, you know, I was really, followed pretty closely, um, you know, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the Michelle McNamara book, um, about the Golden State Killer, and he was just, like, some regular guy who was, right. like, not particularly interesting. Um, and that was sort of glossed over when they found him. It was all about the great, like, you know, geotag hunt and genetic test and all this stuff. Same, same way they got Lonnie Franklin, actually. Um, and I thought, well, I mean, it's not that interesting, you know. The, the interesting part is that you can't find him. But when you find him, it's always just like, oh, you know, it's not all that exciting. Um but because there's this big chase, we have to build it up. So in our media, like Dexter and Hannibal Lecter, they're yeah. all this like overblown, like serial killer stuff. Um, and I think it's kind of time to call that out a little bit, you yeah. know? Um, and if you read like um, some, of the, some of the memoirs of people who've known serial killers or, you know,
0: it just, the, the serial killer is the least interesting part of that story to me. It's yeah. sort of the stuff around it, yeah. And so, and so that, that seems like a, a great way to um, then uh, write a book, knowing that yeah. the serial killer is kind of boring. It is boring.
1: I mean, and I think our fascination with it is really boring, too. Um, you know, they're just going to kill again. It's the same story over and over again, and that's why you get movies that I like, like Seven, where the movie's like completely over the top because at the end of the day, no one wants to watch a movie about like the Green River Killer who killed somebody and then like moved around and killed somebody else. And like, it's not particularly interesting. Um, you know, like if you look at a movie like Zodiac, it's all about the people yeah. and the time period, but he's like, whatever, you know, it's not that so exciting. Yeah. So, and I think it's time to, like, let the victim's story become the more important one, which is sort of the mission here. And, like, the culture of fear that women must live under when they know there's a predator haunting the streets and, like, the lack of attention that's being paid to it.
0: Yeah, and, and you talk a lot about whose voices, um, especially at the the time of in the mid 90s, when um, the earlier part of the book took place, whose voices are <laughs> deemed worthy of being heard. It seems like we have long, long, long way to go in terms of yeah allowing marginalized people to have their own narratives.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's so funny, when you write a book, you suddenly become aware of all the things that are like your book, like, like, you're just like, when someone tells you a story about red cars, suddenly you see all the red cars in your neighborhood or whatever. (laughs) Um, And I've like, I probably would have listened to the Cosby podcast anyway, um, Chasing Catch Jason Cosby, it's great. It's an amazing story about reporting. I mean, the Cosby, Mm -hmm. but like, it's so the same story as what I'm trying to say. It's like, there are so many, um, like, um, actresses, non-white actresses, actresses of color who aren't being listened to in that. um, And it's, you know, it just seems to be this narrative that keeps on going um, and whether, I mean, you would think that like someone, like, You would think that if someone was killing a bunch of people, it would be reason to listen, but it just doesn't seem good enough anymore. Um, And I just rewatched, I started watching on um, HBO, the Atlanta child murders uh, story, and it's just the same story. We've been telling the story forever, and I'm
0: not sure we're ever gonna stop telling it. Yeah, and um, you talk, you know, you weave in the present day, or not present day, 2014, um, mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement is building, yeah. um, and yet we still see from the police just utter disinterest in, yeah. in, in, yeah.
1: I don't know whether, like, I, you know, I'm not an expert about anything. I'm not an expert about Black Lives and the Matter. I'm not an expert about prostitution or serial killers or police procedures, but I am sort of an expert at absorbing the news because, you know, you just get hammered by the same story. It's coming from like, it's coming from every direction. This like, whether it's people don't want to do their jobs, because that involves like, I read, um, Matt Taibbi's book. Um, I can't breathe. Um, Mm. the Eric Mm -hmm. Garner story. And it's like, that's just a different version of the story I'm telling, you know, about, um, people being disregarded and not listened to. And also about police and I'm not a complete anti-police person because one of the things that's great in my neighborhood is that our policing is actually as good as it can be. We're really, you know, the police in my particular neighborhood of West Adams are doing a fairly good job with all aspects of the community. So I don't want to go out and say, you know, screw the police. Um, (laughs) um, And, you know, but there is overall from, you know, from the Matt Taiby book and my book and just reading, you know, in the news, this La- the sense that people just don't want to do their jobs because it might just be easier to ignore things, and that's another level of denial. Like, the, oh. minute, you, when, the minute you say serial killer, it's like the police now have this big effing mess on their hands, yeah. you know? Like, and I think that's another level of denial. Like, we just look away. Like, just like what we're going through now, like, don't look at this pandemic. Like, it's going to go away. And, like, it's crazy. I mean, denial is, you know, it's like, like its, own, its own disease, its own pandemic.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, and there's even um a vice cop uh makes an appearance in your book, and it's yeah, the denial of the, that entire class of people uh, who might have to deal with this officer,
1: yeah, exactly, and also she's living in some insane denial about her past, yes. <laughs> so, uh, um yeah, I just think that, like. It's, I mean, for many people, it's what has to get us through the day is sort of compartmentalizing stuff, but it becomes sort of a disease of, in and of itself, like a taking over.
0: Um, Ivy, let's talk a little bit about um, the fact that your work is called a literary thriller. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, tell me about these labels and uh, what you think. Um, I, you know, it's tricky because
1: the world needs labels, you know, Um, we need labels to understand things and we need labels to put things on shelves. And, you know, at first I was really reticent when Visitation Street, which was my first novel that was classified, a literary thriller, came out to, um, you know, be a mystery writer. Um, And because I didn't quite understand, well, at first I thought that was being completely pigeonholed um, because there is a very conventional aspect to mystery, which I didn't quite, you know, know what that meant. Like like I said, when they told me this book was going to be a mystery at first, I was very upset because I thought that meant like I could only be a mystery writer. Um, And I learned that that was a very narrow uh, perception of the genre and an old fashioned one, but one that was accurate, you know, like mysteries were a specific type of thing. Um, um, And, you know, there are, reasons that being in the mystery community is just amazing because I find it really non-competitive and non-threatening. And I think, you know, I used to say that all the women who I've met there have really embraced me, but that's to do a disservice to all the men who also like, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many great, I, I, I feel like, like, for instance, I, I can really reach out to like top level mystery writers and they will get back to me and be like, what can I do for you? Like yeah. Michael Conley is like, okay, your book's coming out the week before mine. Like, what can I do to help? Um, I'm not sure that that has, the, there is a literary community, that, you know, aside from a very, very small section of people who have the same sort of support system built in. Um, and I think a lot of people entrenched in the mystery community understand that my work is different. Um, and they're respectful of that and embrace that. Um, and I do think, you know, it's tricky because I can't really write a mystery, like per se, like a plotted out one. Right. Um, but it is, it is a little frustrating in the other sense, because, um, not because I care that like, people who like read The New Yorker are going to be like, oh, I'm not gonna read that. It's like about a serial killer. But I think that people will overlook really good books that yes. have literary and good writing in them. Like, yes. when I read, Al- when I read Fair Burke, full disclosure, a good friend of mine. Yeah. And I, I miss, New- I live in LA now, and I miss New York so badly, because the way she writes about New York is so vivid and so specific. And so much on par with like, I don't know, a book that Jonathan Franzen might write about New York, like Mm -hmm. clear and vivid. And I feel like people are missing out because of a prejudice. I'm pretty happy to be called a literary thriller writer because I got to call my book something, you know? (laughs) I mean, I don't want to, you know, everything, I mean, I guess are some books called something, I don't know, maybe some books aren't called anything. They're just called books. Fiction. (laughs) um, Fiction. It's on the fiction shelf. Um, You know, being classified as a literary thriller writer, you learn a hell of a lot about marketing. I think I could like, I know more about marketing than had that label never gone onto my book. Um, But I think that it's a more, it's a bigger danger for people who don't read outside of straight literary fiction because they're missing out on a lot you know and I think people who write and read mysteries and other genre fiction are very happy to read you know yes whatever it is um but I think it's a sadder description for people you know who are kind of in a more like highbrow literary world because they're they are you know yeah just look at the Edgar Awards right like yes. sometimes books get nominated for the Edgar Awards and I'm like whoa I didn't even think that was a mystery that's Awesome, and they'll be up against like Louise Penny's twelfth book, and you're like, this is such a strange comparison. Like that's like, it's like a highly literary book, and that's like a procedural. Like how do we compare these things? Thank God the mystery community is willing to do it. You know, (laughs) because I'm not sure Louise Penny's book is going to go to the National Book Awards, even despite you know it may be worth it. It's just like, so you know, it kind of is frustrating because of what other people think. I don't really care. and there's so many books that are, I guess, Dan Sean writes literary thrillers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's a great writer. I don't think, I don't know how they classify his books, but I would call it a literary thriller.
0: His last couple for sure.
1: For um, sure. Well, they're yeah. all really creepy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do, I always come back to the crime community, how just, Oh, it's really special, it seems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. It really
1: is special. And, like, I don't think, you know what, if I had to choose, like, highbrow literary success or being a member of the crime community, I really think I would stick with the crime community. Like, um, it is just a really special place that I didn't even know existed. And um, I'm so grateful for. Like, writing is really lonely. And... um it's really great to have a group of people you can rely on and and readers too. You know, mm-hmm. the readers are so devoted and they're so knowledgeable. And it's almost like going to Comic-Con when you meet like some of these readers. <That's, laughs> it's really cool. That and is like, so cool. I know, it's great. Um, yeah, uh, it's a great community, uh, very surprising. Um, it's, you know, it's I'm just kind of honored to be like, considered part of it um and I get I also I, you know I do sort of have my cake and eat it too because you know some of the people you know, a lot of some of the writers they're like well oh wow I can't believe your book was talked about in this paper I'm like well <laughs> it does have its down it does have its downfall because like people aren't buying it in airports like they're like sucking up your crime novels but, right like, you know but it is you know I get I think it's I think I've towed the line pretty well we'll see I mean, what I don't know what's going to happen the day I have a book that doesn't have a crime in it. Like, <laughs> it could be a terrible idea,
0: but yeah. I don't necessarily
1: write crime novels, so it's confusing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what you've been reading lately that you've enjoyed, that you'd like to recommend.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. Um, well, speaking of weird crossover books in this world, um, one of my fellow Echo authors, Smith Henderson, who wrote 4th of July Creek to massive literary acclaim, came over to the, the good boy's side and is uh, wrote a thriller with a friend of his, uh, uh, his writing partner, uh, John Mark Smith, and it's called Make Them Cry, and it's a really great thriller. Um, and I sort of was really into that, uh, Make Them Cry, because it's someone who made a giant genre shift um and i you know that sort of appeals to me to you know believe you can play on both sides of the fence um i'm also fortunate enough to be reading the new elizabeth hand cast miri book which is so good it's called a book of lamps and banners i have no idea when it's out but i started it last night and i stayed up later than i should reading it um and i just finished sarah slygar's take me apart which is a great book it's i'm so impressed that that's a debut right now um it's really wonderful um and i think she's gonna write a bunch of great novels if that's the first one she wrote um so yeah ivy thank you so much oh. <laughs> thank you this has been great yes